Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And we're live. Well, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Damon Richardson. Welcome, Damon. Welcome. Uh, well, I'm glad to be on and glad to be a part of uh, this podcast and very excited about today's discussion topic. Awesome. So today we're going to be talking about a very hot topic, but before we get into that, I want you to uh, introduce yourself to our audience. All right. Well, I am, I'm originally from uh, Queens, New York, and uh, grew up in Clearwater, Florida. Uh, So I am a byproduct of the North and the South. And uh, I um, was born and raised in the nation of Islam and uh, became a born-again Christian at the age of 16. Uh, started preaching at the age of 17, and uh, for 27 years now, I've traveled, I've pastored, and uh, my particular interest in ministry uh, is uh, urban apologetics. And so just like you, uh, my uh, focus has been uh, to equip believers to become conversant uh, with the various theologies that we encounter in an urban context. Uh, like, of course, the Black Hebrew Israelites, the Nation of Islam, Five Percenters, Nuwabians, and just some of the other ideologies and philosophies that we, uh, we run into uh, on the, in the urban context. And, and so uh, that's just a little bit about my uh, uh, ministry. And uh, I uh, am working on a PhD currently in, uh, in leadership studies. Uh, I've spent a number of uh, years uh, matriculating at uh, at least four or five different uh, seminaries, so I've got a, a pretty wide perspective of uh, the best of all worlds as it relates to your your liberal seminaries, your conservative seminaries, and everything in between. So uh, that's just a little bit about me. Also, well, I'm glad to have you on uh, with us today. We're going to be talking about hidden colors and um, I actually years ago had no clue what hidden colors was. I ran into a guy and he was like, 
you need to watch Hidden Colors. All the answers will be in there as it relates to Black people and faith. Um, so it's very popular amongst Black millennials. It's very popular online. And people actu actually view this as a scholarly work that we should uh, listen to and, and, and people build arguments around it and use that as their reference um, point. And so I thought it was very important that we talk about it here on the Jude 3 Project. And um, thank you, Damon, for being so gracious and giving us your time to talk about this. So uh, for those who haven't heard of Hidden Colors, give us an overview of what the series is about. Uh, so the, uh, the Hidden Colors series, uh, which was produced by uh, Tariq Nasheed, uh, is um, uh, primarily about um, the, the black race and it, it, it looks to um, develop or um, it looks to reconstruct a history uh, for black people in order to uh, demonstrate that, you know, we, we are a great people uh, and that we come from a, a, a legacy of, uh, of greatness. Uh, but in the process of that mission, it derails itself because it attempts to reconstruct uh, a spiritual and theological history. Uh, so it goes into uh, a number of points where it attempts to discredit Christianity, uh, to uh, discredit uh, Jesus Christ, and, uh, and to posit the idea that Christianity is indeed the white man's religion and that um, it has been introduced to us as black people within the context of oppression and slavery and therefore it should be uh, rejected by us. And, and so uh, a lot of the other videos, uh, for instance, number two, when it gets into melanin, um, it also starts to, um, it, it starts to construct a, a Can you repeat that for me, Damon? Uh, I, I love uh, And so melanin becomes more. Uh, so it, it and I, uh, but it, it appears to uh, construct a narrative that attempts to deify melanin or blackness and use that as a, um, a platform to demonstrate one of the various reasons why uh, black people are great and even greater than white. So it, 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 it starts to derail itself in a number of different ways by presenting um, history that is not factual, science that is not factual, uh, Christian, Christ, Christian history and theology that is not factual. And, and so at the end of the day, the real goal of Hidden Colors uh, is to glorify uh, black ethnicity and the black race in a way uh, that is misleading. Uh, it is historically disingenuous. Uh, it is a uh, re-mythologized and a historically revisionistic piece that cannot be trusted. And the scholarship is entire, is, is very, very poor. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important that we understand that because, um, because we live in a day where our culture is doesn't trust the history that's presented for good reason. Um, sometimes we are 
uh, misrepresented. There's textbooks that show that we were indentured servants and not slaves, and they try to misinform uh, young people in school systems uh, on the um, realities of slavery and different things of that nature. It's easy for movies like Hidden Colors to gain traction in our community. That's right. Uh, people are looking for real history, uh, but you don't combat revisionist history with other with more revisionist history. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you combat revisionist history with the ac- accurate depiction of history. Um, when you That's talk right. about how it it um it uh it tells a false narrative when it relates to Christianity, what, what are some things there that you see in the, in, in the, in the series? Uh, one of the things that stood out to me is um, uh, one of the uh, presenters talked about the council of Nicaea. And that seems to be one of the, uh, uh, the, the go-to discussions for these kind of narratives. And uh, as they were all presenting uh, their narrative on the council of Nicaea, the first thing that stood out to me is, none of that matches what actually happened. For instance, one of the presenters uh, says that when the Arians showed up to the, to the council, uh, that uh, Emperor Constantine put in a, a hit out on them and attempted to assassinate them, and they fled into Europe. And what Hitler, uh, if, if Hitler had only known that the real Arians were actually black people. And I'm like, wait a minute. Uh, that's not what happened. That's not even close to what happened. And, uh, and so they, they all go into um, attempting to politicize why Constantine uh, convened the Council of Nicaea. And they uh, introduced the narrative uh, that uh, the Bible was created or invented there. And, uh, and so that is completely false. And, and nothing like that occurred in history, particularly at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, for one, uh, both on the side of Arius and the side of Athanasius, uh, both sides uh, were aware of Jesus' existence or else the debate would have been moved. They, they, there was already uh, a conclusion and an agreement that the books of the Bible uh, were divinely inspired. Uh, there was already agreement about the historicity of Jesus the debate was really about uh, Arius's view that Jesus was a created being, that he was made uh, in a similar substance to the Father, or homoousius, as opposed to homoousius of the same substance, which was Athanasius's orthodox position of the Trinity. And, and, and so that's all that was really on the table at the Council of Nicaea. And it wasn't even Emperor Constantine's, uh, uh, it, it wasn't his idea to convene uh, the council. It was actually Eusebius of Caesarea's idea to convene this council. And it was his influence upon uh, Constantine that he decided that this kind of uh, fracture in the empire is not a healthy thing. So let's bring the churches together from the East and the West to discuss it because we don't really want to see division in the empire. So Constantine's, uh, his whole stake in the matter was just Pax Romana, peace in Rome, period, peace throughout the empire. 
uh, the, the stake of the church was theological uh, cohesion and orthodoxy. And, and so, of course, uh, the Nicene Creed was constructed as a result because Arius's position uh, was uh, refuted as heresy, uh, and that uh, refutation stands till this day. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to note, even when we're dealing with the Council of Nicaea, Dr. Tyson said this last week of when he talked about his uh, book on Athanasius, when we had him as a guest, and talked about how Constantine tried to bring Arius back and tried to present him to Athanasius and Athanasius saying that he kind of converted to Athanasius's position and then Athanasius wouldn't accept him back. And so Athanasius was it kind of shunned for that. So it wasn't like a concoction. I mean, Constantine was, like you said, he was more concerned about peace than doctrinal accuracy. So that's right. Now it is a fact that uh, Constantine uh, was swayed by the popularity of Arius's view and was baptized as an Arian by Eusebius of Nicomedia. And, uh, and, and, and so, and, and uh, Constantine's son, Constantius, uh, was also uh, an Arian. Uh, but the, uh, the view of most of the church in the East and the West was that Athanasius's uh, orthodox position on God was correct. And, and not Arius's. And so even though Constantine uh, was swayed in the wrong direction, his direction did not mislead or have any bearing on the church's uh, focus on orthodox Christology and orthodox theology proper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something that, you know, is missed in our culture in talking about, you know, it being the white man's religion. Is there any other ways that you see throughout the series that the white man's religion narrative is is kind of uh, I mean, kind of weaved into the story? Besides the Council of Nicaea. I'm sorry if you would re repeat that question. I, I uh, my connection was a little bad there. Okay. Is there any other way that you see throughout the series that? the narrative that Christianity is the white man's religion is kind of um, presented outside of the Council of Nicaea. Yes, yeah. I, I, I think one of the problems is, is that uh, those who would posit the idea that Christianity is the white man's religion, uh, first they misunderstand uh, that Judaism and Christianity, which was a subset of Judaism, uh, it, its primary geographical focus uh, was the continent of Asia and Africa, not Europe. And, and so for your first thousand years, uh, Christianity um, is, is, is known uh, for its popularity in Asia and in Africa. In fact, uh, just before the, uh, the Edict of Milan, uh, when uh, the emperors were persecuting the church, uh, in the late first century, early second century, uh, when that persecution began to be more directed and centralized at Christianity, those greatest attacks were in North Africa. They were not on the continent of Europe, and that was because 
the greatest expression of Christianity um, at that time was on the continent of North Africa. And so the reality is, is that uh, a person positing that idea has to discount your first 1,000 years of Christian history. Uh, for instance, uh, even in your fourth century, it's quite interesting. Athanasius, when he was finally promoted uh, to bishop, when he replaced Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, uh, Bishop uh, Athanasius actually gave his approval uh, for a church plant uh, in the area of the Axum Empire uh, that we now know of as uh, Nubia uh, or even Ethiopia. Uh, and, uh, and of course, King Izana uh, was one of the very first uh, black kings that led a Christian nation. And this is in the fourth century. And Christianity had already been in North Africa prior to that. We know that, of course, uh, when we're reading the writings of Tertullian. Uh, when we have read of the story of uh, 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 Vivia uh, Perpetua uh, and Philicetus. And, uh, and, and we know that, of course, from Acts chapter 8, uh, when the Ethiopian eunuch took the gospel back there. We know that because the Coptics had a tradition uh, that Mark uh, planted a church in Egypt in AD 48. This is literally uh, less than... Um, less than 15 years outside of uh, the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and then, of course, when you go um, 200 years after the time of King Ozana, uh, you, you also have King Negus uh, of the Axum Empire. And it was King Negus that provided refuge uh, for Muhammad, uh, which was the first hijra that is typically not mentioned uh, in Islamic history because the implications would be that were it not for Christianity, Islam would have died in the desert. So it's quite ironic is that Christianity saves Islam uh, by King Negus, who was a Christian of a Christian nation uh, in Ethiopia or Abyssinia rather, um, saved Islam um, after Muhammad fled uh, many of those who were seeking his life, uh, running through the desert. <laughs> and sought refuge uh, in, the, uh, in Abyssinia. And so he provided refuge for Muhammad and his followers uh, for at least seven years. And, and, and so this is, this is hundreds and hundreds of years before slave ships would have arrived uh, uh, in, in, in the event that we now know of as the transatlantic uh, uh, slavery. So uh, these, these guys, their history is just way too late to make the uh, to make the claim uh, that Christianity is a white man's religion. Mm -hmm. What are the other problematic uh, portions as it relates to history in hidden colors? Uh, oh. <laughs> one, one of the ones that was incredibly problematic uh, was this false theory about the uh, sixteen crucified saviors. Uh, I mean. Uh, this this is the worst kind of history uh, that that one could ever create. So so uh, here's how that thing goes. Uh, so so uh, I'm I'm trying to remember the I'm trying to remember the, the name of the author uh, that first posited this. Uh, that he wrote a book actually called uh, the Sixteen Crucified Saviors. Uh, but what he does conveniently is he changes the names of many of these so-called messiahs. <clears throat> so that it has 
more of a similarity. So for instance, with Krishna, he spells it with a CH so that it gives the impression uh, that it has something to do in origin uh, with Christ, whereas Krishna actually means dark. It has nothing to do with Christos in the Greek, which would, which would be the Greek word uh, for Mashiach in the Hebrew, which would mean anointed one. And, and, and so he attempts to use uh, um, phonology or phonetics in order to create similarity in sound. And even when he talks about uh, one so-called uh, Messiah named Hesus, H-E-S-S-U-S, -S -S he uses more of a Latinized pronunciation. So it sounds like Jesus, so that he can draw a line in between that and, and Jesus. But Hesus actually means in, in, the, in a uh, Gaelish uh, uh, dialect, it actually means master, whereas Yeshua from the Hebrew uh, means salvation. And, and so there is, it's, it's not a cognate from another language. It's completely unrelated. And, and, and so most of these guys, there's no source documentation uh, for, for the historicity of most of these so-called saviors. And the other 12 uh, that you do find in historical writings, there is no actual similarity uh, between uh, what uh, those histories say about them and the history of Jesus Christ. So, so you have a remythologized uh, version uh, and a revisionistic history of, uh, they attempt to say that they all have mothers named Mary, they all died and rose again. Almost none of those guys, for instance, Mithra uh, is not known to have died at all in Persian mythology, let alone died and, and raised again three days later. And so the facts are, is that this 16 crucified uh, savior is, uh, is not factual at all. It is not based on any scholarly histories uh, or corollaries uh, that, that um, come from documented source evidence. So the reality is, is that this stuff is completely contrived and made up by people whose modus operandi is simply to discredit Christianity and discredit Jesus Christ. And people who want to believe that, uh, they need no evidence. You need no evidence to desire to believe that. All you really need to do is, is, is really have it in for, for Christianity, and that, that will suffice. But that kind of history uh, is just not based on any evidence whatsoever. <laughs> I think that's, that's important to know because when we talk about, you know, how they like to make, like you said, the per Persian mythology, then you go back to Egyptian mythology. There's always this going back and saying, okay, well, this is Christianity is borrowing from mythology um, in an effort to disprove it. And so um, I know you talked about some other problematic thought, uh, things you saw in the movie. What are, what are those? I'm sorry, would you repeat that? What is another problematic portion that you, that stood out to you in the movie besides the uh, Council of Nicaea and the uh, the, uh, the other mythological connections? Well, uh, uh, some of the other things that that stood out to me uh, was some of the um, some of the science uh, that went into the discussion. For instance, the discussion on on melanin. Uh, some of the other histories as it related to uh, Kemet, 
uh, and uh, comedic history. Um, I think that is really the crux of where the hidden theories goes. At the end of the day, uh, the, the idea behind it, the thrust, the impetus behind that series is to really elevate uh, comedicism above Christianity. And, uh, and so it, it constructs a number of histories about how uh, the Egyptians knew certain things before uh, the Hebrews knew it. Um, let me just say this, because the, 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 the problems are almost nebulous, but, but here's, the, here's the problem with the entire argument. The, the argument is based on what you would call an argument from antiquity. And, and that is the idea that because something is ancient, that it must be of necessity right because it is old. Well, well, that makes no more sense than talking about, uh, than, than constructing an argument from modernity. That is, an argument must be right because it is new. And, and, and so this is what a lot of people don't realize, that because you can uh, dig up uh, artifacts from ancient Egypt, no matter how old they are, or no matter how old these histories are, that doesn't follow, it doesn't follow uh, that Egyptian uh, cometicism or Egyptian religion uh, is, um, is something that is reliable, is something that is divine. The age of it has nothing to do with the truthfulness of it. And, and that is the construct, that is the position that people who look at these histories don't understand how old something is. For instance, the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, predates uh, the, the, the book of Genesis, but that doesn't mean that the Epic of Gilgamesh has truth in it. And, and in fact, most of what is written in the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, is more fable. And, and so the age of a thing doesn't necessarily uh, mean that it is truthful. And, and that's how we've got to look at this series is that that is the idea that is presented is that cometicism is older, therefore it's more truer. And once you bite the hook or the bait for that, everything else starts making sense to you because you think, oh, wow, that's older, that's older, so it must be truer. And that is the kernel and the seed that they plant in your mind early on uh, in series, uh, the first video and the second video. And from there, the other two installments, uh, they, they've got you. Mm -hmm. I think this has been extremely helpful and a really good, solid overview for people as they're understanding and navigating the series and, and getting questions about it. Um, I know there's tons and tons of details that we could go over and we will be here all day <laughs> trying, to, <laughs> trying to go over every detail, but I think you provided a great overview. For those who want to get deeper into the things you address, the sources you use as you're navigating through things like Hidden Colors, what would you recommend to them? Uh, one of the things I would, uh, uh, two books that I would recommend, uh, and actually they're in volumes, uh, but I think one of the greatest gifts that we have today from a church history standpoint uh, is Justo Gonzalez. And uh, he was a professor actually out at uh, Emory, a Candler, uh, uh, Candler uh, Seminary uh, in Atlanta. And, uh, but he has um, a volume, a series called History of Christian Thought. Uh, there, there is a, it's a three volume series. 
and then he has a great uh, church history called uh, the story of Christianity. And uh, so I would I would highly recommend anybody starting with Justo uh, Gonzalez's story of Christianity and the history of Christian thought, uh, because he walks the reader through um, all of the important uh, thinkers, theologians, scholars, and, and major players throughout uh, church history. Uh, he walks the reader through what the issues were uh, at each point throughout church history and the, react, the reaction of the Eastern church and the Western church uh, to, those, to those issues, which were through the first five centuries, typically Christological uh, discussions. And, and so he walks you all the way through from the dawn of Christianity, all the way through the Reformation and the period of the Enlightenment. And he, you can see the development of Christianity uh, from century to century in a beautiful picture uh, that is a real easy read. Although Gonzalez is a top-notch uh, scholar, uh, it is easy reading for, for anybody uh, that is interested in a accurate and scholarly uh, presentation of church history. Yeah, I think that's awesome. We had to read him for uh, church history. So absolutely. <laughs> How would people get in t contact with uh, you, uh, Damon, on social media? Uh, okay, good. Well, I, uh, I, I'm just really starting to kind of break into uh, this whole social media thing. So uh, every Monday on, on Facebook, I do a, a live discussion that is usually centered around some apologetic or some controversial issue. Uh, it's usually every Monday at 730. Uh, I also move those videos over to my uh, YouTube channel, uh, which is uh, Damon Richardson Ministries. Uh, and so if you uh, go to YouTube uh, and su subscribe, I've got roughly about uh, 40 videos there uh, that, that range in topics. Some of them might be exegetical, but typically uh, they're going to be addressing one apologetic type issue or even just some sort of uh, uh, doctrinal matter that says, uh, here's how we should think about this particular uh, theological or doctrinal issue uh, as it, it confronts us in the church. So uh, those are two typical ways. I do have a website, but it is in the process of actually adding content. So there's not a lot there right now for me to be able uh, to uh, direct somebody uh, there too. Uh, but so Facebook uh, uh, and uh, YouTube would be the primary ways of uh, getting in contact with me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, David, for your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you uh, for having me on as a guest. And uh, I uh, really appreciate your ministry and your uh, tenacity at getting this uh, information out and uh, sharing it uh, with the, uh, the world and the body of Christ uh, so that we can do, as First Peter 3.15 says, uh, to be ready to give an answer to every man that asks a reason of the hope within us with gentleness and with respect. So much respect to you and God bless you in your ministry as well. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives 
other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.